today on Creative Christians. As my faith has become stronger, I've realized it's so much less about me and so much more about what talents have I been given and then how do I utilize those talents to be in service to others. That's Dr. Kurt Sensky, author of The CEO and the Board, The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage. Today on Creative Christians. Creativity, faith, inspiration. As Christian creatives, how is our creativity different because of our faith? you got to believe in what you're doing. Listen and let the Holy Spirit lead you. To be in Christ and have an identity in Him above anything else, I think is extraordinary. If you believe God's called you, you can't walk away from that. These are stories of creative Christians. Welcome back to another new episode of Creative Christians, the podcast series that explores Christian creatives, their talents, their faith, and what they're doing at the intersection of both. I'm your host, Tim Risto. This episode marks the beginning of our second season of the show, and we've got a great season of new guests ahead. I'll be changing the format of the show slightly as we go along, probably rolling it out over several episodes. Um, but mainly kind of adding some things uh, that will enhance the discussion of uh, being a Christian creative and the issues that surround that. But otherwise, we're going to remain an interview format show, so we'll still have guests on, and uh, there'll be a lot to talk about. And I'm very excited about the season ahead and the guests we've got planned. My first guest of this new season is actually my first returning guest of the show as well. Um, today, I'm joined by my good friend and colleague, Dr. Kurt Sensky, whom we had on uh, th- for the fourth episode, I believe it was, of our first season. On that episode, we covered a lot of ground, and I'd highly encourage you to go back and listen to his first guest appearance with us for a little background. Now, Kurt is the founder of CEO Board Services, a consulting firm that specializes in working with mission-oriented organizations. Previously, Kurt served as CEO of Upbring a multifaceted, multi-state social service organization. Kurt's extensive board experience and service includes serving on 11 boards of directors, including as chairman of Thrive and Financial. So he knows what he's talking about, okay? And today we're going to be discussing his latest book titled The CEO and the Board, The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage. Now, the topic of this episode is actually incredibly timely. At the time of this recording in the news has been the recent collapse of SVB and signature banks, SVB, Silicon Valley Bank. And all this happened shortly after Kurt and I finished our recording session. So we weren't able to address that directly in this episode, but you're going to find out a lot of what we discussed that ends up really relating to that, this whole collapse of the banks has called into question, at least in part, and of course, among many other issues, but the roles and ethics of CEOs and board members. So there's going to be a lot to dig into here, a lot that you'll find relates to a variety of organizations and situations, even though it may sound like, oh, just 
CEOs and boards are going to get something out of this. No. Once you listen to what Kurt has to say, what his book's really about, there's a lot of relational stuff in it. And this book really opened my eyes as to what those roles are about and how important that they are. That who you select, of course, as your CEO is important. Who serves on boards is even more important, perhaps, because so often in the past, and I'll talk about this a little bit in the episode with Kurt, but, you know, it's very easy to just kind of get caught up in the idea of serving on a board and of the prestige of serving on a board. But it's really an important role that people need to take seriously and focus on why you're doing that. If you've been asked to serve on a board, that it's a responsibility and how you communicate, what your ethics are, how you focus on the mission of the organization is so critical. So there's a lot of great stuff here that we're going to dig into. And again, I think everyone will find something intriguing and eye-opening and revealing in Kurt's discussion. Let's dig in. Kurt, welcome back to Creative Christians. Tim, it's great to be back. Thank you for having me. I am uh, so excited about having you back on the show because instead of covering a whole career, a bunch of books uh, and topics, this time we get to focus on a single topic, uh, which is what your latest book is all about. And before we get too deep into that, I just want to say, you know, if back during our days at Concordia, you know, you were on staff, I was a student at Concordia Lutheran College, if you had told me, Tim, one day you're going to interview me about my latest book about board governance of an organization and CEOs, and you're going to love the topic, I would have said you were crazy. <laughs> but here we are, and I am, and I do. This is fascinating. Your book, The CEO and the Board, The Art of Governance as a Competitive Advantage, this is your fifth and latest book, uh, is really so much more than a book about just the mechanics of how a board governs an organization or the role of a CEO. Uh, and while that's certainly a big, big part of it, and it's loaded with tons of useful information about those things. But personally, I see this book as even deeper about relationships, about communication, about personal integrity, uh, both for board members and CEOs. So, Tell me, am, am I right on that? You know, what is this book about, and who is your uh, target audience for this? Yeah, Tim, I think you're spot on, actually. And, you know, so much of relationships, whether it's in a governance setting, a organizational setting, a, a marriage setting, or a family setting, it's all about communications. It's about integrity. It's about relationships. And from my perspective, uh, organizations and board governance and CEO board relationships, it's no different. Mm -hmm. And so the target audience for this book is anyone who serves on a board or leads, for example, a nonprofit organization, a foundation, a congregation, a school, a university, because all of us have a fiduciary responsibility in those respective roles to 
best serve the community um, in which we live and which we uh, have our organization's impact. And so this is a, a, a kind of a how-to to the art piece of that. I, I enjoyed reading this book. You know, I read this and I was just fascinated by it. I mean, it opened doors to me. I, I haven't been a CEO. I haven't been even on a board. I've been asked a couple of times and I've never, never done, never taken that leap. But this really drew me in to a whole new fascinating world. You know, what prompted you to write this book? So the, the funny side of the story is my wife, Lori, who you know well, um, would tell you jokingly that I'm only really good about, at about seven or eight things. Yeah. Now, fortunately, one's marriage, the other's maybe being a father. Uh, <laughs> but what I cannot do is uh, build something. I can't repair anything. Right. But I am good at governance. I'm good, hopefully, at being a leader, yeah. and uh, especially at herding cats. And so <laughs> in the past 30 years in my professional career, I have served um, on 11 different boards of directors, mm-hmm. served as tw- CEO. CEO for 23 years, and now for the last two and a half years have served as a consultant to boards and CEOs. Mm -hmm. And so it's a unique perspective, I think, that I have in terms I've looked at this governance dance from all sides. And so I thought I had something to offer, because when you look at the literature that's out there uh, today, it's almost all about the science of governance. And uh, what was left out from my perspective is, as you mentioned, the whole communication relationship integrity piece, which really is becomes the competitive advantage, or if you don't have it, a competitive disadvantage. And you've read a lot of that. You reference, you know, some in your book as well. You've read a lot of that stuff that's out there, and. There is a ton, isn't there? It's just not focused, like you said. Yes, and I think if you Google board governance, you'll probably get like 200 different responses. And so the science of governance is there, and it's fairly easy for uh, even a first-time board member to pick up and understand. But then putting it into practice, to me, that's the difficult part, where you you take a group of, say, 12 board members and a leadership team of four or five individuals, and you want them to all be marching in the same direction missionally to accomplish the the stated goals and in the meantime continue to provide um, the individual expertise that each of us have to continually improve the success of the organization or the the to clarify the the mission going forward because Board governance is never static because as the external environment evolves, as it changes, as the internal environment evolves, that by necessity would um, cause your your board governance model to evolve as well in order to remain and stay relevant. So for the uninitiated, you know, every field has its lingo. Uh, Of course, this is a broader term, but, you know, what is governance for those that don't know exactly in the context of a CEO and a board. Yeah. So when you think about it, especially from a nonprofit or a congregational or a school perspective, uh, it basically means that you are responsible. The, the legal term is you have a fiduciary responsibility to ensure that your organization is serving the community. It's not supposed to serve you. It's not supposed to serve other individuals, but how do you better the community? And so at the essence, that is your role as either a board member or a leader of an organization that doesn't happen to be for-profit. The role of selecting people for boards. This is a big part of the book. It's one of the things that kind of drew my attention. You know, last time we had you on the show, I mentioned how often there seemed to be a mismatch of the right people for boards. I know you've witnessed that in your years of experience too. And you address that in your book very well. 
in general, how do you view that selection process, its importance in terms of, of governance? Yeah, and I, I probably view it from several different perspectives. You know, the, the non-negotiable is that everybody who comes to the table has to be a person of integrity, needs to have passion for the organization, um, and be willing to put their own ego aside in order to better serve the organization. But having said that, there's real value, and the research is clear on this, of having a diverse set of skill sets and experiences sitting around that table. Uh, McKinsey and Company, which is a consulting group, um, demonstrated that boards with diverse membership, uh, those organizations are much more successful on average than those with more homogeneous boards. Mm-hmm. And so it can be a wide range of skill sets and, and, and experiences. Um, you know, you may need to have an account or, or an attorney on the board, but you also want to have people with different life experiences. So maybe, for example, in my old organization, you'd want a foster care parent at the table. Or in a foundation, you might want to have a grantee recipient at the table because they've just had different life experiences and perspectives perspectives than those of us who, you know, maybe came from the same community. And and to that point, in uh, in chapter 11, which is one of the chapters that really gripped me, I think it was 11, 12, there was some great uh, relational type stuff in there I really loved. Um, but you wrote, it is in the organization's interest to have board members who hold competing worldviews because it allows for a broader conversation to occur about the various risks associated with a specific strategy. So obviously there is the potential for deeper conversations to take place with this approach. But at the same time, there's also the risk for greater conflict between board members because of that. But how do you strike that balance when you're looking at those things? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And and I think in order for it to be successful, you maybe have to have a couple of non-negotiables and then I can share with you an example if that's, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, One is it really, and and the research again um, demonstrates this, that a board needs to have a certain amount of emotional intelligence. And so what's interesting to me is only about 31% of the population has uh, the requisite emotional intelligence, the the ability to empathize, the ability to bring a group of people together and lead them in the same direction, uh, to be a servant leader. So that's one piece of it. But also to have those trust-filled, difficult conversations, you also have to have initially built a relationship with each other. And so it's important for boards and and leadership teams to take time to really get to know each other, both personally as well as professionally. Mm -hmm. And so as an example, when I was CEO of Upbring, uh, we had a number of programs along the the border for undocumented minors. Mm -hmm. And depending on which administration uh, was in the president's office at at the time, uh, it was a little bit different. And so what was helpful to us as we talked about how we wanted to serve truly the least of these was to have people with a Republican perspective and a Democratic perspective sitting around the table to talk about the various different perspectives and risks, rewards of operating these types of uh, programs from their perspective. And as a CEO, listening and participating in those conversations, one made me a better person, but maybe even more important, allowed us as an organization to make really good decisions about how we could most effectively serve those who are placed in, in our path and in our care. That's a great point. I assume it helps to create better listeners, too, because you're having to hear somebody else's perspective that you might otherwise, you know, pass off because you don't 
have to hear it. But when you're in a setting like that where you need to have a shared exchange of ideas and viewpoints, hopefully that builds better listeners. Yeah, no, absolutely. And it's really helpful to for both the board chair as well as the, you know, whether it's a principal or CEO or senior pastor to especially be good listeners and to have a sense of the room in order that everybody can participate and everybody can have their viewpoint heard and to do it in, again, a trust-filled environment. And so, you know, I talk about how when you're selecting your board chair, it's really important to um, understand their own emotional intelligence because that's going to really guide the board going forward. Kind of along that line too here, I'm going to, Go back a chapter here, chapter 10, the art in finding the right balance and governing. You write this, the art of a board member is knowing when to wear the hat of a listener, advisor, cheerleader, active participant, or decision maker. You know, despite the fact that for many years people relied strictly, organizations relied strictly on finance people, which again is is important obviously in this setting and and not knocking that. Um, But a lot of type A's kind of filled, filled the boards. And you seem to suggest here, and tell me if I'm wrong, but that having people skills and not strictly number skills may even be more important, especially in our world today, where there's a lot of uh, sensitivity, you know, people being offended, things like that. I think people looking to be heard. Is that an accurate assessment? Yeah. And, you know, at a minimum, just as important. And what I would say is, one, you have to have those people skills in order to be an effective board member and a, a leader these days. The uh, search firms like Corn Ferry and Spencer Stewart are increasingly looking at the personality of prospective CEOs as opposed to their resume and their skill sets because you're leading such a diverse group and different generations of individuals these days that it's, it's vital. And so, yes, absolutely. And then having that diverse skill set sitting around the table. But What's also interesting to me, and I think sometimes board members forget this, is yes, technically they are the boss of the CEO or the boss of the you know the, the principal, yeah. uh, the leader. But ninety five percent of the time, in some ways, they're equal partners, and in some ways, even the the leader, the CEO, is usually in charge because they're the one responsible for day to day operations, right? Right. And a typical board will only meet 50 to 75 hours a year. And so it's understanding that you're all in this together and that 95% of the time you are equal partners and that you have the shared responsibility to lead the organization forward. Communication is key. And to me, again, that's one of the things that really came out of your book. You know, I mean, it's key in any organization or a family or relationship for that matter. Mm-hmm. How is it absolutely critical in governance? You know, uh, and what's an example of how boards maybe don't handle communication well and what they can do to kind of right the ship, so to speak? Yeah. In unhealthy organizations, what you'll see sometime is the leader being afraid to share everything with the board because he or she will be afraid that there's just going to slap his or her hand. Mm-hmm. Right. And so part of it is how do you build that relationship between the board and the leadership team to ensure that th- they can share everything and, um, that, um, 
to collectively they will figure out how to solve any potential problems that have mm-hmm. gone on. So I saw one uh, situation where the board was literally asleep at the wheel because one, they trusted this president, but they didn't ask the hard questions. And in the meantime, the external environment had changed and he finally retired. And then the new president came in and realized that if he didn't make any changes, enough changes quickly, they were probably going to go bankrupt. And so he actually then had to bring in the board and say, here's the situation. I'm going to need all of you to lean in to help me to save this organization. And uh, the board was literally asleep at the wheel. Um, And so it, it, it requires intentionality on the part of the leader to build the relationships between the board Mm -hmm. members and he or she. And it also requires a, uh, intentionality on the part of the board to get to know each other as well. You know, so I'll serve on a national board and we'll come in for a meeting uh, flying in from various different parts of the country. And unless we set aside time to have breakfast or have dinner or to do something socially together, right. we're not going to know each other that well. Right. And then when things get difficult, it's really hard for us then to uh, get on the same page to make the hard decisions. But right. if we've gotten to know each other, it's so much easier because there's that common bond and trust. So it does require building a relationship outside of those meeting settings, right? To, to really grow and foster that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I don't know how you have an effective board and leadership team without that. Now, the hard part is, you know, CEOs are already working way too many hours. And what I tell them is, you know, in order for you to really have a good board uh, staff relationship, you probably have to spend 15 to 20% of your time on this. So it's, it's not an afterthought. It's something that has to really occur with intentionality. But if you don't, some bad things can happen over time. What are a few examples that would fall into the category uh, uh, or fall into having a competitive advantage that you speak of here? I know that's all, you know, a a multitude of things here in your book, but what are some that really, you know, when it comes to organizational governance that help to give you that competitive advantage? Yeah. And, you know, some people don't like the term competitive advantage. So sometimes I'll say missional advantage, but it's the same thing in in my mind anyway. And so again, maybe I'll use an example from my old organization upbring a few years ago, now probably five, six years ago, we realized that because the external environment had changed so much, we could no longer be all things to all people. We were trying to serve the children, the elderly, and the poor. And so because we had a strong relationship between the leadership team and the board, we were able to come and say, all right, here are the changes in the external environment. Here's what we have capacity to do. Here's what we're really good at. Here's what we're not good at. And as a result, we were able to come together and say, all right, what are we best at in the communities we serve? And it turns out to be uh, breaking the cycle of child abuse here in the state of Texas. Mm-hmm. And so as a result of having that clarity in terms of our mission, we were then able to make really difficult decisions of selling retirement communities, changing our brand, creating an advocacy de- department, creating a research department, creating an innovation lab, Um And then also creating new programs in both the education and social services space, knowing that those were important to breaking the cycle of child abuse. Without those strong relationships between the board and the leadership team, um, it would have been really difficult for us to make those difficult decisions because some of us, some, some, you know, some of our stakeholders were not happy with some of the decisions we made. Sure. But in order for us to continue to add value to the communities over the long term, which is our sole mission, it was incumbent that we made those difficult decisions. Yes. 
And that's got to be tough navigating that then too, dealing with the unhappiness of stakeholders and how do you kind of smooth that over? You know, that's another communication process there too that I'm sure is very challenging, especially when people's emotions are involved. Yes. In fact, I just did some consulting work for an organization that had changed its brand. And one of the things I told them from experience is you've got to repeat the same reasons of why you're changing the brand over and over and over again, mm-hmm. probably till you're, you're tired of talking about it. Right. But, um, and, and then having those one-on-one conversations with the individuals who just don't understand it, because typically after you've had the one-on-one conversation, even if they don't like it, they'll understand it. Yeah. Um, but when you create a vacuum is when some bad things can start to happen. Ethics. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, how much does ethics play into governance? It seems like that'd be pretty, pretty critical to me and perhaps becoming even more important today than it was, you know, maybe a few decades ago, because a lot has changed. And, you know, as a Christian leader, you've had the opportunity to examine this both in Christian organizations and secular organizations. Mm-hmm. What are some of the similarities and some of the differences you've observed between those? Yeah. And I think you're exactly right in that over time, in my career anyway, there have been changes. And part of it's the advent of social media. Part of it is that we become more attuned to what is right and what is wrong within the workplace, uh, which is a good thing. Uh, So as a result, I think there's been a higher standard of ethics that is placed upon both the leadership team as well as uh, the board of directors, which is always good. But as the rules change, people need to be attuned to to the changing of the rules, right? Yeah, right. So the benefit, I think, of being a Christian, whether you're in a secular world or in a, you know a faith based organization, yeah. is that you can bring your whole faith to the table. And I think you know. So in a previous book that I wrote, it was very clear that if you want to have organizational success in the long term, um, all of the the biblical principles actually fit very well with long-term organizational success, whether it's following the golden rule or all of the different uh, ideas that come out of Proverbs. Um, It's probably the greatest business book ever written. Right, exactly. Where I see similarities, and it's because we're all human and we're all, you know, sinful, is that um, sometimes you have some of this same issues, whether or not you're dealing with a church or a synodical organization or mm-hmm. a nonprofit organization that you do in the for-profit world because yeah. we're we with our sinful nature we oftentimes make mistakes and so right. it's not that by working at a church or working in a, a faith-based organization you're going to um, have a perfect world you're right. not right um, but it, <laughs> maybe even tougher <laughs> yeah in some ways I think it is yeah. <laughs> um, but the, I think what you do have in common is you have the you, you're typically involved in that organization for the right reason, and you have a passion for that mission of the organization, yeah. which maybe then allows you to have some energy that you can, you, you wouldn't necessarily have if, for example, you're working for a shareholder. Right. So what's the common factor in any of these is people. Yes. And so it's still dealing with people. Like you said, we're all flawed human beings. And so 
dealing with each other in terms of communication and ethics, all these different things are going to be universal. Absolutely. And it is much like a marriage, right? And you're going to have good days and you're going to have bad days. But in a good marriage, you're supporting each other. You're you're being a cheerleader. You're being a confidant. You're you're sometimes being an advisor. Uh, Sometimes you're leaning in. Sometimes you're stepping back. And um, it also never ends because every day is a new day within that marriage. Similarly, within the governance model, and this is in some ways one of the foci of my book is that as the board continually evolves because board members come board members go go, leadership team comes and goes this is not a one and done you know the science of governance may get you to the starting point Mm -hmm. but it's really the art of governance of how you relate as individuals and as a family that will determine whether or not you have a missional advantage or not Let's talk about that. You just describe this process as an art. What are a few ways it is an art as opposed to a science? Yeah. So every organization has its own unique culture, its own unique history, operating environment, regulatory constraints. Yeah. And so it to me, it's wrong to say that there is one governance model that's going to fit each unique situation. Right. And so the art of this is it allows the um, board and the leadership team to use their creative juices, their uh, creativity Mm -hmm. in order to adapt governance models or adapt their governance process to fit the unique needs of their organization. And so there'll be times, for example, when a board will say, well, we need to lean in a little bit. We need to select the next CEO. We need to, we have a crisis that we're dealing with. And then there'll also be times when maybe the organizations operating in all cylinders and they can take a step back while continuing their fiduciary responsibilities. And so it's really that it it's allows you to use your own ingenuity, your own um, just intelligence to understand what's right for this particular situation in time. Well, I love that. And I love that you have that as the title, the art of nonprofit governance as a competitive. I just love that. I think it's really cool. Uh, And not a way that I've heard it put uh, before. So very well done. A board is there to provide strategic organization, correct? And is it the CEO's job? And of course the organization's job to carry out that strategic direction or is that, kind of an overly simplistic explanation you know typically it is now in some smaller for example a small congregation or a very small organization they may all be doing some of that together you'll have a volunteer role in addition to a board role but if you're thinking about maybe larger organizations or mid-sized organizations i think that's fair i think what um is important is for the and, and it's changing a little bit uh, in this uncertain environment. Yeah. Post-COVID, inflationary pressures, technology challenges, et cetera. Um, it's really difficult to think five years out at this point. Right. And so what I've been sharing with people is let's get a really strong board leadership team directional sense of what you want to accomplish in the next few years and that everybody can rally around. So um, a foundation that I work with called We Raise, their, their directional sense is we want to multiply generosity. So mm-hmm. for every dollar you donate to them, we're going to triple it um, in terms of the impact on the, on the grantee. Yeah. So that's the directional sense that everybody has rallied on. And, but then they ask the CEO, all right, so what are the three-year goals? What is the one-year goals? What are the 90-day goals? Right. As a way to both monitor and the, the monitor the implementation of the larger goal. Yeah. 
What's interesting to me, Tim, is that most organizations cannot tell you what their exact mission is because it gets complicated, right? Oh, yes. And so what I like to share, the, the famous example I like to share is, think about John F. Kennedy's speech when he said, in 10 years, we're going to put a man on the moon. Mm-hmm. So everybody at NASA, he or she knew their role in terms of their job at NASA, right. in terms of accomplishing that mission. Today, I almost think it has to be that simple knowing that you're running a very complex organization, Mm -hmm. but in order to bring everybody to the table. Yes. Oh, well put. And to your point of, of, you know, organizations not knowing their mission, I don't know how many times uh, in the past I've been involved with videos with groups and needing to produce a project for them and say, hey, you know, what's, what's your mission? We want the video to tell us what the mission is, kind of what they're saying, in essence. I go, well, that's not really my job. I'm here to visualize your mission. And so it's always been kind of interesting. Uh, most of that's been far past. But, you know, how many have that expectation of, of a video guy to to develop the mission for them when that's the, really the role of the board? And, and well, you're exactly right, Tim. In fact, just recently I was working with an organization, and we – just as a test, yeah. ask 10 employees, what's the mission of the organization? And we filmed them. We didn't, we're not right. going to use this publicly, right? right but right. we filmed them just to show other leaders and the board members. Sure. Eight of the 10 could not answer it. Yeah. And they were stumbling and it was kind of comical. Right. But it also was a clear demonstration to the board and leadership team is you don't have a clear mission. Yeah, exactly. They do great work. Right. But they don't, they're not all marching in the same And and that doesn't bode well for long-term success. Exactly. Well, of course, you've served and led as CEO. You know that role from the inside. And you talk about having healthy advisors on a board that serve as mentors to CEOs, the importance of that. From your experience as a CEO, why is that critical to unifying that relationship between a board and a CEO? What's interesting to me, and I think unless you've been a CEO or senior pastor or principal of a school or president of a university, how lonely that role can be because you literally have no peers. And so even if you were promoted from, say, a vice president to a leader, all of a sudden it's a whole different relationship. Right. And you wonder why people stopped asking you to go to lunch. You say, I'm still a nice guy, but they don't ask the CEO to go to lunch anymore. Exactly. And and so it's really helpful whether it's – it's really helpful to have at least one or two people on the board who've been there before because they can understand what you're going through and uh, the support you can provide. I also found it helpful. I have a couple of really close friends who served in the CEO capacity where I could go in confidence and just have conversations with them. Um, It was important for in in, in, you know, in a non-judgmental sphere where you could share the good, the bad and the ugly. Exactly. Um, So, but I think it's important for, um, all board members to understand that it is not the easiest role in the world. Right. And so one of the roles of a board member is to be supportive while it's still time. It's still at the same time holding them accountable. You know, I think what's also changed in the last 10 to 15 years is with the advent of social media, 
um, a leader is increasingly in a fishbowl, and yeah. they're going to be judged for every statement or like they make on Facebook right. and other areas of social media. And so you're, and 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 you know, there's also websites now that uh, judge how a CEO is doing in an organization, sure. or if the culture of that organization is good or bad. And so you you are increasingly being judged in not always fair um, ways, yeah. and it's something just to be aware of. Great point. I mean, we look, of course, we've got Tesla up the road here, and, you know, Elon Musk has certainly been the focus uh, with uh, Twitter takeovers and all these sorts of things that have happened. You know, there's a lot more CEOs in the limelight than ever would have been before. You know, are, are there some names, I know I didn't really prep you for this, are there some CEOs that stand out for you as examples, good examples of, of uh, CEOs that have really Drived and succeeded. Yeah, no, it, a couple that I've been privileged to work with um, that come to mind immediately. Uh, a gentleman by the name of Arnie Sorensen, uh, who headed up Marriott. Mm. Uh, just and 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 a second one who I put in the same category, a gentleman by the name of Gerard Arpey, who was the CEO of American Airlines, oh. and you know both of them had challenges yeah. uh, in difficult environments, but what they both brought to their table was their deep faith. And that they also understood that in addition to serving their shareholders, they had a real responsibility to the community, to their employees, and that they personally needed to give back um, in so many different ways. And so to me, those were role models, even though they were in the for-profit world, right? because they were able to bring all of their integrity and all of their faith to that particular environment. And in the process um, I saw them being really effective witnesses uh, within their own secular corporations. You know, as I read your book, it seemed to me that much of the content provides wisdom and just a wealth of guidance for any organization with a team. I mean, whether it has a board or not. I know it's specifically written to address boards and CEOs, but I think many church, obviously boards, but also elders, trustees, worship teams, ministries could easily benefit from a deeper read of your book. Um, because there are, like I said, there's a lot of relationship issues, a lot of communication issues that you address in here. Was that kind of part of your intended audience too? So here's what's the interesting part. When I was writing the book, it was not. Um, in fact, my publisher said, let's just focus on the nonprofit organizations. So, yeah. And I said, okay. But what's fascinating to me is now that um, some of the copies of the books have gotten out, mm -hmm the senior pastors and pastors and leadership teams within congregations are starting to read the book and they're saying this fits exactly what we're looking for. And in fact, I had a really interesting conversation with a pastor of a pretty large congregation and he's fairly new. And he said, one of the changes that he's slowly making, which is annoying a few people is that when he got to his church, his elders and board of directors were almost all third generation members. Mm -hmm. And so they felt this is really our congregation. Mm -hmm. And as a, a, a the, and the downside to that is they weren't getting the perspective of say a, a new Christian or a new member of what was needed from their perspective from this congregation. Right. So he says he's bringing in these newer members that he th thinks can add to uh, the board. And, and to me, he's fulfilling the art of governance perfectly yes. as yeah. he's getting different perspectives sitting around his table. Right. So, so yes, I it's it's interesting. I, I I would highly recommend this to anybody who's involved with the church. Let's get back to that whole concept of of uh, conflict for a minute. Um, on page sixty six, you you write this uh, great little line about dealing with dissent 
with a spirit of inquiry, um, which sounds great. I just love that phrasing. Um, but how does one go about doing that in a board when there is, you know, that that conflict maybe between a board and a CEO or between individual board members? Emotional intelligence is so important. Right. Uh, it's, it's understanding that uh, you're asking questions, you're probing with the end result to have a better outcome as opposed to criticizing the CEO or, or an, a fellow board member. Right. I actually serve on a secular board right now where we have six board members and five really have a ton of emotional intelligence. And then there's this one gentleman who does not. And I think he's a really well-meaning individual who comes at it for the right way. But the problem is because he doesn't quite know how to work within a group, he's not effective and he's actually causing enough friction where it's slowing our organization down in terms of accomplishing what we want to accomplish. Yeah. And so to me, it's a great example of how important it is to have that collective emotional intelligence, but also understanding that there is a role for what I like to call the gadfly, which is an individual who's not who's unafraid of bringing up the difficult questions, the elephants in the room that an organization simply must address, but sometimes is afraid to address. Yeah. And so I think there's real value for having board, a board member or board members who are able to do this in a way that will add value to the organization, but still address some really difficult questions in the room yeah. um, that oftentimes boards and leadership teams would rather put off to another day. And and obviously it's an honor to serve on boards, um, but there's some people that may take that kind of to the other extreme. And trying to deal with those individuals on a board, I assume that also provides some challenges and, and ties into what you talk about with emotional intelligence too. Yeah, and you know I've especially seen this, for example, on boards of, art museums or right. uh, universities where it is indeed a real privilege to serve on that board yeah. or even for-profit uh, boards that, you know, will pay their board members. Right. And so you're sometimes afraid to rock the boat because this has been good for you personally. Right Now, I think what everybody needs to remember is from a fiduciary responsibility our role is to always put the organization first, yes. even if it means at personal sacrifice to yourself. Yes. And if, again, it goes back to integrity. It mm -hmm. goes back to the passion for the organization. If you truly believe in the mission of the organization, you're going to do the right thing. Right. Even if it causes you maybe some personal harm. Yeah. Yeah. I know there's... People I've known in the past who, you know, like to be on boards because they get to travel or do this or that. But I loved how in your book you just drew it constantly back to that point you just made, the mission of the organization. Let's do what's best for the organization. That should trump everything else. We are always moving the organization forward. Yes. And, you know, it includes on a rare occasion even having to get rid of the leader right. um, because he or she may have been right for the past but no longer right for the future. Now, the research also demonstrates that if you have to make that difficult decision, and at times you do, you need to treat that person via what I call the golden rule. Yes. Uh, because other people will watch within the organization and say, wow, this board is different. You know, they, they've made a good decision. They made a hard decision, but yet they're treating this person with respect. They're treating with them in dignity and also providing them maybe with some sort of uh lifeline so that they can go on to their next career. Yes. To that point, since you brought that up, you've served as CEO and you came to a point 
where you personally recognized, you know, your abilities in that role for that time, for that organization, had reached, you know, its, it's zenith, really, mm -hmm. and that it was best for the organization that you move on and allow a new CEO to, to take the reins. I mean, I have to say, talk about uh, emotional <laughs> intelligence and being able to recognize that. But walk me through just a little bit about what the challenges were like of making such a personal decision like that and the role, again, of integrity of a CEO and how that went with the board. You know, part of it was that I had such a trust-filled uh, relationship with the board that I could actually have some private conversations with a few board members to say, what do you think? I'm thinking about this. And, and I've done this as in, in, as a reflection maybe every five years as CEO. Yeah. And every at those point in time, says, yeah, I still think I can add value to the organization. But, you know, as, as approaching 60, um, I'd been there for 23 years at a really strong leadership team. Some of them who were capable of being CEO after me, I, at least from my perspective. Right. And also, you know, with the advent of technology coming on so quickly, mm -hmm. um, I just thought that there might be other people that were better suited leading the organization in the future. And if I truly put the organization first, it couldn't be about me. Mm -hmm. um, but I also was, I guess, happy that I had such a relationship with the board that we would work on this together yes. and that collectively we would figure out what was best for the organization going forward. Right. And it ended up, I think, working really well. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, the if the test is to leave an organization after you leave an organization they've performed better than when you were there mm -hmm. i may have actually met that test and then <laughs> and you have to take your ego out of that yeah but it feels good to see that upbringing which is the name of my organization is yeah. continuing to have such an impact in the communities that it serves oh, without sure. me yeah <laughs> but you helped lead it to that point too so i mean there's so and so much that was accomplished during your time there you were there 20 23 20, three yeah as ceo and 25 total wow yeah. amazing well and you did some wonderful stuff during that time so Thank you. uh and obviously you had a a, a good board as well. Uh, let's talk about the time because there was something here too. On page 91, uh, you shared this interesting anecdote about your board pushing back on a merger that you had in mind. Organizational expansion is kind of being the end result of that. But but that ultimately discovered it would have really created some missional drift. Tell me a little bit about that and how you had to adapt, how leaders need to learn to adapt through continuing education, sometimes admitting your own mistakes, letting go of one's ego, all those things. Yeah. What the research also demonstrates is that for a leader to be successful, they he or she has to have a growth mindset, always yeah. learning, always being willing to understand that there are things you don't know. Right. Um, and so in this particular situation, we had developed a very clear mission and breaking the cycle of child abuse within the state of Texas. Right. Um, but then we were in some ways sidetracked by this organization out of state that did something similar, but not quite the same. And it would have added, you know, tens and twenties of millions of dollars of revenue to our organization, yeah. a number of different clients that we would have served. Right. And so I think I got caught up into the size and bringing on other states as opposed to really being clear about my mission. And, and what was really beneficial to me to have a strong board, a board that was able to have a conversation and ask me, Kurt, have you thought about this? Have you thought about th that? Yeah. Um, are you sure there's not a missional drift? Is, is this really makes sense. 
because I respected them so much, I literally did listen and realize they were right. And I uh, said, okay, I, I hear what you're saying. I think you're right. Let's focus, get back to what we're really good at, and yeah. um, we will no longer pursue that. Yeah. But I, I could have also seen another situation where maybe a CEO would have been headstrong and say, no, we're going to do this. Right. Um, but it wouldn't have been right for the organization. Right. Yeah. So uh-huh. it's, it's always fun to use examples where you're the one that uh, made the mistake. <laughs> <laughs> well, it proves you're human. And uh, Absolutely. I'm guessing there's probably a lot more times in that board CEO relationship where there's probably more disagreement than agreement on things. And navigating through that is really part of, you know, navigating through that in healthy ways is probably just the lifeblood of an organization. Yes. And, and part of the art of governance is to create an environment where that's allowed to happen. So yeah. I talk about, you know, every board and, and leadership team should be looking forward during their meetings at least 50% of the time yeah. to talk strategically, to talk about what the external environment's doing, to talk about potential new initiatives, what they need to open, what they need to close, what they need to focus more on, where they need to allocate resources. If And, and what's interesting to me is most boards actually spend most of their time looking backwards. So mm-hmm. They'll review financial results. They'll look at the past quarter. They'll talk about the last year. That's nice, and you probably need to do a little bit of that. But, but you're it's not all about yes. You're not pushing that box forward. All right. I want to hit upon technology here quickly before we come around and wrap things up. Here again is a great quote, just from page 44. A board that I'm involved with recently appointed a young executive of a growth stage technology company to replace a board member with more of a typical Fortune 500 resume. As the organization continues to execute its strategy to deliver a larger percentage of services via technology to its clients, a historically ideal candidate may no longer be appropriate. It may be in the organization's best interest to take a chance on candidates who may be a little bit younger, more entrepreneurial, and tech-savvy, albeit with less board experience. What implications does this have on an organization's new board member orientation and continuing education process? I love that. It's a great paragraph. Um, Tell me a little bit about how that growing role of technology has changed the roles of board members and CEOs. Yeah. And I think tech technology questions and issues have permeated almost every organization. Mm -hmm. And so what has been interesting to me is how many organizations don't necessarily have any sort of technology savvy within the CEO or the board members. And so Mm -hmm. in the old days, you could almost rely on your IT team to help you through that because it was a one-off. Today, it permeates everything. Yeah. So you as a CEO need to um, continue in that growth mindset and just learn everything you possibly can about technology in order to continue to be an effective CEO. And you also need to have at least some board members, I think, across different generations Mm -hmm. uh, sitting around that table because a millennial is going to have a different perspective of technology as a Gen X as as opposed to um, someone in, in my age category. Right. Exactly. Well, and and that role of technology, I mean, back when you were CEO, I think it was probably still dealing more with the news organization. So if something bad broke, you know, you had some time to kind of work with uh, PR to kind of, how are we going to deal with this? Today, it can be instantaneous. And I think you even uh, 
correct me if I'm wrong, making reference to, you know, situations where unethical board members may share something via, uh, you know, social media that shouldn't be, and it's out there instantly. And then you have to scramble to address that. Very different dynamic there in dealing with the implications of social media. Yeah, no, absolutely. And in fact, I can remember a time where I got up early to get the morning paper because I thought there might be a story about my organization in the paper, right? Right. Nowadays, like you mentioned, it's going to be on social media just like that. And we'd better be responding instantly as well, or you're going to miss the whole cycle. Yeah. And so the world has changed in terms of how quickly it escalates, yeah. uh, but also terms in terms of your response. There's some real benefits to having a very positive social media presence, mm-hmm. but it's also difficult to do. Right. Um, and so it, there is a, a need for expertise to help guide you through this new uh, environment. Era. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Big question here. How has your own faith informed your life? your decisions, and your ethical responsibilities as it relates to board CEOs and the art of governance? You know, that's a really deep question, right? (laughs) Um, But, you know, I think what it's done is as I've matured as an individual, I've found that I think I've become a better leader, Mm -hmm. a better board member, because um, as my faith has become stronger, I've realized it's so much less about me and so much more about what talents have I been given and then how do I utilize those talents to be in service to others. And when you approach it from that perspective, it's a little bit different than trying to climb that ladder to get that next title. And um, it's also so much more rewarding because it's no longer about you. It's about who have I served today? Right. And that's the fun part about life, at least from my perspective, and, and as a result of, of my own faith journey. Yeah. Amen. Well put, Kurt. Well put. Which all leads back to our callings, too. Right? Absolutely, it does. I love yes. That. Is there a select passage from uh, your new book you want to read to us? So, uh, Tim, I've been thinking about this, and, mm-hmm. and I've been thinking about what's important to me is why we serve either as a board member or as a leader. And it's because, one, we've been given the talents uh, that we've been given. Yeah. And two, it's, I think, our responsibility to um, make our communities and churches and organizations a better place. And so the question that I ask in the conclusion of the very last chapter is, is this shared journey worth the effort? And from my perspective, we simply have no choice. Yeah. If we want our schools, hospitals, museums, universities, trade associations, faith-based organizations, foundations, social service organizations, and churches to add values to our communities and the world in which we live, it is imperative for us to artfully create a board governance structure that becomes a competitive advantage. And so it's my prayer that you as a board member and senior leader will embrace this solemn responsibility. Your clients, members, customers, employees, and communities that you serve depend on you. The world depends on you. And I close with wisdom from the Apostle Paul. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Mm. Hebrews 12. Love it. What better way to close than with Scripture? I love that. Phenomenal, Kurt. Uh, where can people pick up a copy of The CEO and the Board? Yeah, several places. Uh, cph.org, which is my publisher. Yeah. Amazon.com. 
And if they want to learn more about me, uh, KurtSensky.com. And uh, you can purchase a book on KurtSensky.com as well. And you do coaching, right? Yeah. So I'm a consultant uh, for boards and CEOs, and it's mainly in matters of governance, strategy, uh, succession planning, and then uh, some CEO coaching as well. Awesome. So if if a CEO or board needs some help, they can contact you? They can contact me at KurtSensky.com or KurtSensky at gmail.com. Excellent. Beautiful. Kurt, thanks once again for being on. This has been a joy to explore an area that I know it's very near and dear to your heart and uh, been wonderful just digging in on some of your experience too. Well, Tim, thank you. And and I've actually learned so much from the guests you've had on Creative Christians. And oh. uh, so I've benefited from your podcast. So thank you for that. Oh, thanks so much, Kurt. That does it for this episode of Creative Christians. My guest today has been Dr. Kurt Sinsky, author. Be sure to pick up his new book, The CEO and the Board, The Art of Nonprofit Governance as a Competitive Advantage. You can get that through kurtsensky.com. That's K-U-R-T-S-E-N-S-K-E.com. Thanks for joining us again for this episode of Creative Christians. Go to Apple Podcasts or whatever your favorite podcast distributor is, and be sure to subscribe to catch each and every new episode. I'd really appreciate it if after listening, you'd take a moment to rate the show. Helps me to gauge feedback and in rankings for the show as well. If you're really feeling generous, I'd love it if you left a brief review too. Let me and others know what you like about Creative Christians. You can also email me directly with your feedback, comments, or questions at tim at timristo.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Tim Risto. Until next time, stay creative and stay in God's Word. Blessings. Creative Christians is produced by yours truly, Tim Risto. Special thanks to my guest today, Dr. Kurt Sensky. As always, a shout out to my lovely and supportive wife, Tracy Risto. Creative Christians is an audio production of Tim Risto Productions. Visit timristo.com to learn more. That's T-I-M-R-I-S-T-O-W dot com.